Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin today with our health lead. The surge of new coronavirus cases so high in the United States, at least 12 states have by now paused or rolled back their efforts to reopen. More than half the country, 31 states, have their lines trending up, lines of new cases. Florida, California, Texas, Arizona, all reporting the highest number of new daily cases that they've ever had. Only four states are seeing a decrease. One month ago, on Memorial Day, 18 states had rising cases, compared to the 31 who have them today. Ten states were seeing a decline. Again, only four of them today. This is what a failure to contain a virus looks like, as opposed to this chart from the European Union, which shows, at least as of now, a successful effort to contain the virus. What does that mean? That means European lives will be saved and American lives will be lost. Now, Health Secretary Alex Azar is warning Americans that the, quote, window is closing to get the pandemic under control in the U.S., And in a new interview with CNN, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious diseases expert, said fueling the surge are Americans not wearing masks, not practicing social or physical distancing, causing a, quote, recipe for disaster. CNN's Randy Kay is live for us in Palm Beach County, Florida. That's the state leading the nation in new cases. And Randy, things have gotten so bad in Florida. Mayors are even shutting down beaches for the Fourth of July weekend. Yeah, and that's not good news, Jake, for lots of folks here, of course, for a lot of reasons, not only the cases going up, but people are looking forward to their beach time on the July 4th holiday weekend here in Palm Beach County. They decided to close the beach. And if you just take a look here behind me, this is a Monday afternoon. You can see why. They want to stop, uh, they want to avoid a spike on top of the spike. They don't want crowds coming to the beach here in Palm Beach County. It's the same reason Broward County has closed the beaches for the July 4th weekend, as well as Miami-Dade County. These three counties are where 60% of the cases uh, of coronavirus were. Uh, So these are the hardest hit counties in the state. So they're taking some extra precautions now and dialing things back. Uh, And they're also looking at the young people. They don't want the young people out and about uh, because their numbers are going up. The governor said that 20% positivity rate is what they're seeing now in the age group 25 to 34. So they're very concerned about that. But still, Jake, the governor is not mandating that all beaches close for the July 4th weekend, nor is he mandating, Jake, that every Everyone in the state of Florida wear a mask or some type of face covering. And Randy, the city of Jacksonville in Florida announced today that they're going to put in place a mandatory face mask requirement for people who go out in public or for people who are indoor locations at indoor locations. How might that impact the Republican National Convention, which is planned for Jacksonville uh, in August? 
Yeah, well, as of now, the governor is saying that he's not ready to say that that face masks won't be required there. In fact, he's saying that uh, masks are a work in progress and he expects it will be fine by that time because it's just a couple of months away. Um, But we know that the numbers are now worse than they were a couple of months back. So I'm not sure what he's basing that on. Meanwhile, the the city of Jacksonville is saying today that they're they're watching it. They're monitoring it. They're going to take it step by step, keep their people safe. But one one important note here, Jake, is that Jacksonville was one of the first cities to open. They took it upon themselves back in early May, the first week of May, to reopen their beaches. So now they've had their firefighters testing positive. They're having to wear face masks now. uh, And now they're expecting to hold the RNC August 24th to 27th. So we'll see what happens. All right, Randy Kay, stay safe. Arizona saw its largest daily increase in new coronavirus cases just yesterday reporting nearly 4,000 new cases in Arizona alone. Hospitals in Arizona are now at nearly 90% capacity, with the spike in cases showing no signs of slowing down. CNN's Stephanie Elam uh, joins us now. And Stephanie, the executive director of the Arizona Public Health Association, is predicting that Arizona hospitals will hit surge capacity by Saturday, by the 4th of July. How is Arizona combating this? Yeah, it's a difficult situation to be in, Jake. And just to give you an idea, the numbers for Arizona from the Department of Health here have been updated. However, they didn't get all the numbers in from all of the labs. So the numbers look really low. Some 600 or so cases are announcing. So we may see a very large number tomorrow, just to explain that to anyone who's looking at that. But what's also key here is that they're saying the ICU beds that are filled, they were at 87% with the number they gave us yesterday. Today, they're saying 88%. They did not report any more deaths. But that ICU bed issue is huge. And so we've reached out to a couple of uh, hospital systems. We reached out to Bander Health. They said that one of their children's hospitals, they're taking three floors there and dedicating that to COVID patients. One floor there will be dedicated to ICU patients. So just think about that. They're taking a children's hospital and making space for adults to treat them for the coronavirus. This is something that speaks to this. They're also looking to bring in more nurses, some of whom who have worked in New York. Well, New York was going through its really uh, difficult period battling the virus here. So they're bringing in these nurses to help out as well. And when you look at these numbers and see what's happening here, you can see it's done by county or by city here. Uh, the governor, Doug Ducey, says people should wear masks. And driving in, you can see the signs saying mask up, but he's letting the individual counties and towns make that decision here in Maricopa County. It is required that you wear a mask now, Jake. All right, Stephanie Elam uh, in Phoenix, Arizona. Thank you so much. The nation's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, has been pretty clear on why he thinks several states are seeing surging numbers. People aren't wearing masks, and there are lots of big crowds. All of that, Fauci says, is a recipe for disaster. CNN's senior medical correspondent, Elizabeth Cohen, interviewed Dr. Fauci, and she joins us now. Elizabeth, thanks for joining us. Wearing a mask, social and physical distancing, so important, health experts say, because otherwise community spread can happen when asymptomatic people are out in public. They don't even know they have the virus, but they're spreading it. What did Fauci have to say about states that are telling their residents to do this, to wear masks, to to practice distancing, but are still not seeing results? So in my interview with Dr. Fauci, Jake, he really gave a personal message to the people of these states. He said to them, look, I understand you want to get out. I understand that lockdown has been really rough. But think of it this way. If you don't wear a mask, if you do go out in crowds, 
You might be fine, but you might get infected, not even know it, spread it to someone who spreads it to someone who spreads it to a grandmother who dies, an uncle, an aunt, somebody who somebody loves, a child with leukemia who has a depressed immune system. Why in the world would you want to be part of a chain that kills somebody? He was very, very strong on this. He said, we need to stop thinking about ourselves. We need to start thinking about other people. And Elizabeth, there's new research that shows eight of the hot spots emerging nationwide. Uh, officials there are not having uh, sufficient contact tracing in place. Uh, there's supposed to be 30 professionals contact tracing for every 100,000 people in a community. And in Nevada, Florida, Arizona, Idaho, Tennessee, Texas, Georgia, South Carolina, there are significantly fewer than that number of people. You asked Fauci about contact tracing. Uh, here's what he had to say. I don't think we're doing very well for a number of reasons, not all of which is the fault of the system. In that, you know, I mentioned this uh, over the past few days, that if you go into the community and call up and say, how's the contact tracing going? The dots are not connected because a lot of it is done by phone. You make a contact, 50% of the people, because you're coming from an authority, don't even want to talk to you. Uh, If you're in an area where there are a lot of brown people, people who are Latinx at the border, they're concerned if, they give you, if you give them confidential information, it's going to work against them. And then there are those who they'll give you the contact, but you don't exactly isolate them. They get lost in, in the shuffle. That's very, very difficult situation. That we've got to do better on. Elizabeth, what do you make of all that? It was interesting. He then went on to say that a lot of this contact tracing is being done by phone. You, you know, you, we heard him say that people are getting lost in the shuffle. He thinks that's because some of this is being done or much of this is being done by phone. He said we need to have boots on the ground. Those contact tracers need to go into the community and talk to people, not just call them up on the phone. You also asked uh, Dr. Fauci about the effectiveness of a potential vaccine. Let's roll that sound. I doubt seriously that any vaccine will ever be 100% protected. The best we've ever done is measles, which is 97 to 98% effective. Um, Oh, that would be wonderful if we get there. I don't think we will. I would settle for a 70, 75% effective vaccine because that would bring you to that level of would be herd immunity level. And then Elizabeth, Combine that with the fact that, that according to polls, one-third of Americans say they will not get a vaccine when one is available. How does that impact the, the ability of a community to develop herd immunity against the virus? Jake, I asked Dr. Fauci that, and he said, wait, he said, you know what, if we have a vaccine that's 70 to 75 percent effective, and if about a third of the people don't get it, he said it is, quote, unlikely unlikely that we will achieve herd immunity that way. That is really, really a problem. And so he said there needs to be an education program to teach people about vaccines and that vaccines are safe and that they're effective, that we need to counteract the, 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 what anti-vaxxers are saying on Facebook and other social media. He said that there's a program underway, but Jake, I will tell you, we reached out to the CDC, to Operation Warp Speed, which is running the vaccine program in the U.S. They did not point us to a program. So now there's concern that there is no such program 
program and that basically the anti-vaxxers are going to win here and that we won't ever get rid of COVID because even if there is a good vaccine, that it won't be effective because too few people are taking it. All right, Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much. Appreciate it. A key ruling on abortion from the Supreme Court and for the third time this month, the Chief Justice has thrown conservatives a curveball. Then Texas is seeing a surge in coronavirus cases, but is the governor on the same page as local officials? That's ahead. Breaking news in our national lead today, the four former Minneapolis police officers charged in the killing of George Floyd, appeared in court just moments ago. An attorney for one of the officers blasting President Trump, Minnesota's governor, and the attorney general and other officials saying that they have unfairly spoken publicly about the case. The judge issued a stern warning to any officials thinking about speaking out, threatening to move the pending trial out of the city of Minneapolis. CNN's Josh Campbell was in the courtroom and joins us now. Josh, so there's a date set now for the trial? That's right, Jake. We do have a trial date that's set. This will be in March of uh, early part of next year. And in this hearing that concluded just a short time ago, the key message from this judge is enough with the public comments about this case. This followed after one of the attorneys for one of the officers charged in this case publicly blasted, as you mentioned, the president and state officials here in Minnesota, saying that their public comments are prejudicial, that they're trying to unfairly try this case in the media. And one of the attorneys actually uh, said that uh, made an accusation against the attorney for the family of George Floyd, saying that he was uh, leaking information that was presented to him from the state's attorney general, the judge admonishing everyone in this case, saying that enough with the public comments, that he wants this uh, court, this trial tried in court. He wants to see motions and pleadings, not press statements as it relates to these uh, defendants and the members of the government. He also said that the remedy here is not going to be to open up the court to cameras and audio. The remedy for additional public statements is going to be possibly moving this trial out of Minneapolis, changing the venue. Now, what we're also learning from, there were people inside the court in addition to the defendants. Uh, one of the family members of George Floyd was also there. I caught up with him outside of court, and he talked about what it was like to see the officers here that allegedly murdered his relative. Take a listen. I found it absolutely crazy that I sat six feet from a dude that, that helped that was involved in murdering my nephew and he gets to walk around. That was two of the last people that felt my nephew breathe, you know? Uh, and they, uh, they had a hand in stopping him from breathing. Now, as far as where we go from here, Jake, now we're now in the process of discovery where the government is handing over information to the uh, defendants. We're told that there are some 8,000 pages of documents, video, uh, footage, and photography and the like that they're pouring through. The next hearing in this case, Jake, is set for September the 11th. Again, the trial is set for March of early next year. Jake. All right, Josh Campbell in Minneapolis, thank you so much. A major Supreme Court ruling today in our health lead. In a 5-4 decision, the court struck down a Louisiana abortion law that would have imposed such rigid, sta rigid standards that only one clinic would have been left in the entire state of Louisiana. And once again, conservative Chief Justice John Roberts is the one who tipped the scale, siding with the more liberal justices to block the Louisiana law. CNN's Jessica Schneider is outside the Supreme Court for Jessica uh, what's the restriction Louisiana tried to mandate that, that's now been blocked? 
Yeah, so Jake, this Louisiana law, it would have required doctors performing abortions to gain admitting privileges at hospitals within 30 miles of where the abortion was performed. Of course, the challengers, they opposed this. They said that this would have left just one doctor in the entire state of Louisiana able to perform abortions. It would have left only, uh, it would have closed two out of the three remaining abortion clinics. And the challengers also said that there was no medical benefit for this. There was uh, no valid state interest. And the Justice Breyer, in writing this majority opinion, went even further. He said that doctors, in many cases, the evidence showed, uh, they were denied admitting privileges to hospitals because these hospitals or hospital officials were anti-abortion. But in the end, Jake, this decision came down to the fact that Chief Justice Roberts said that this restriction was just too similar to a 2016 Texas restriction that the Supreme Court had previously struck down, Jake. Yeah, and today's vote is significant on many, many levels, including uh, a first for Chief Justice Roberts, who usually leans uh, in favor of restrictions on abortion. That's exactly right. The chief justice has never actually voted to block an abortion restriction. This morning was was the first time that he allowed a, an abortion restriction to go into effect. But he did say that essentially his hands were tied here because of that 2016 Supreme Court ruling knocking down that virtually identical Texas law. The way Justice Roberts called it, he said the burden on access to abortion is just as severe in Texas in blocking this Louisiana law. The White House, though, taking a swipe at Chief Justice Roberts and the liberal justices who voted 5-4 in this majority opinion. The press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany, releasing this statement in part saying, instead of valuing fundamental democratic principles, unelected justices have intruded on the sovereign prerogatives of state governments by imposing their own policy preference in favor of abortion to override legitimate abortion safety regulations. Now, that is sort of taking a swipe, Jake, at the chief justice, but notably the chief justice in his concurrence opinion, he left open the possibility that restrictions like this in other states, they could go through if there were differing circumstances. So by virtue of the Chief Justice's opinion here, the door isn't completely closed on these restrictions, but they have been blocked in Louisiana. Jake? All right, Jessica Schneider at the Supreme Court for us. Thank you so much. Who at the White House knew what and when? That's the new demand from both Republican and Democratic lawmakers about reports that Russia paid money to terrorists to kill American and British troops in Afghanistan. We'll discuss next. In our world lead today, the White House responding to a damning new report that Russia offered money to Taliban terrorists if they killed American or British troops. The Washington Post is reporting, per the intelligence assessments, that these bounties did result and U.S. troops being killed in Afghanistan. Today, White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany said there was no consensus among U.S. intelligence agencies about the veracity Hello, of the report. Well, CNN's Kaylin Collins joins me now. And, and Kaylin, you pushed McEnany about the intelligence today and what the president was going to do about it. Yeah, Jake, what has been clear is the White House is saying that the president was not briefed on this in person about what was going on. But the question, of course, is now the president is aware of this intelligence, as most of us are now, and several outlets have confirmed this. So the question is, what is his response going to be? Yet the White House today said that they do not believe there is an agreement among the intelligence community about what actually is in that intelligence assessment. 
So intelligence is verified before it reaches the President of the United States, um, and in this case it was not verified. I won't speculate on whether this intelligence is verified or not verified. I have no further, um, no further notifications for you other than to tell you there's no consensus and there are dissenting opinions from you some within the intelligence think this is true. community. You don't think this report is true? I'm telling you this, that there's no consensus in the intelligence community and that the dissenting opinions from some in the intelligence community exist. Now, Jake, of course, there does not have to be a consensus among the intelligence community for the president to be told about something. Oftentimes, this in, these intelligence reports he gets can be fragmented, and that's the purpose of them, is to tell the president what they know if there are dissenting opinions from people who don't believe that it's true. So that qu question, of course, going forward is when do they decide whether or not it's verified, and what is the president's going to, the response going to be? Because, of course, the concern is making sure that U.S. troops are protected. And there are a lot of Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill wanting to know more about this. You have some new details on the briefing that the White House held for some members of Congress about the intelligence. Tell us more. Yeah, seven Republican lawmakers have been briefed on this. They just finished that not long ago here at the White House. And we're told that briefing was done by the National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, the Director of National Intelligence, John Ratcliffe, and the Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows. It was seven Republicans there in the room. And Jake, that's been raising some questions about who's getting briefed and what they know. We are told that Meadows has offered to Democrats to also give them a briefing with seven members, but it does not appear that that briefing has happened. It's not clear if the Democrats have even responded responded to that offer from the chief of staff. So we're still working on running that down, but we do know at least some of these Republicans, and these are Republicans who were raising concerns about the fact that the president wasn't briefed. One of those is Mac Thornberry. He's the top Republican on the House Armed Services Committee. And he said, you know, even if these reports had a hint of credibility, the president should have known about it in his opinion. All right, Caitlin Collins, uh, thanks so much. Let's talk more about this. I want to bring in former Republican congressman and chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, CNN National Security Commentator, Mike Rogers. Uh, chairman Rogers, good to see you as always. So you heard uh, Kaylee McEnany there saying that there's no consensus among intelligence agencies about the veracity of the report. Um, she said it hasn't been verified. I've never heard the term verified uh, used when discussing intelligence. But, but I, I guess the bigger question is, does there need to be consensus before the president would be told about something so important? No, not really. And by the way, when when they when she says there is dissent across the intelligence committee, that this is more than some errant piece of intelligence that might get that might come in or get thrown over the transom, either by an ally or some other collection where you there just wasn't enough to it. Clearly, there was enough. There was lots of discussion. Uh, and oftentimes, even when there is kind of an affirmative agreement on what we think the intelligence says, there'll be dissenting opinion. And that dissenting opinion is normally heard because you need to make the, you, you need that information to make a good decision. So what worries me here, Jake, is that there was lots go think of how much was going on in the last year or the last few months. So we know uh, General Nicholson, who was uh, there in and leading troops in Afghanistan when he retired, said, Listen, we know the Russians are giving weapons and there were large seizures of cash. So this is not a big stretch that the Russians would go into providing bounty for cash. So we know that much. And then in the interim, they've been trying to make a peace deal. So they've been releasing prisoners. They've been trying to scale down the numbers. All of that without knowing the full picture of this, including, by the way, the president inviting Putin to be a part of the G7. I mean, that's what's so concerning to me. And it almost sounds dysfunctional at a level where we have troops in combat in the field exposed to bad decisions.
I don't know which is worse, to be honest. President Trump knowing about this and still having Putin uh, still extending an, a hand and try to bring him into the G7, or as he claims is the case, that he wasn't briefed. But let's assume that, that he's telling the truth on that. How concerning it is it that the president wouldn't be briefed on that? Well, to me, again, this is he's making policy decisions, right? So he came out and said he wanted Putin. Did he not know that? Apparently not. I think that's been verified. He didn't know, wasn't briefed. That is dysfunction to me in the national security enterprise. Something's going on. You don't want it. And by the way, it doesn't mean it would change the outcome. I would argue probably has should have, but maybe it didn't. And that would be okay too, as long as you're basing that decision on good information. Why they would, would, would withhold this information when they're doing Taliban prisoner exchanges. They've released some 2,000 Taliban fighters uh, back onto the battlefield, and we have U.S. troops in Afghanistan. I think it would be good to know if the Russians were not only arming the Taliban, but also providing money for bounties. That's pretty serious. Now you have 2,000 folks that are likely to be right back in the ranks of the Taliban, uh, maybe even collecting those bounties. And so, again, even if there wasn't a 100% consensus on this, they should have been briefed. The principal should have been briefed. By the way, the Gang of Eight should have been briefed on this information. Now, some of that may be complete dysfunction on Capitol Hill these days, but that just tells me we better get yeah. our act together. These are serious consequences. So um, listen to President Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton. Listen to his reaction when I asked him about the report and the president's tweet yesterday. The fact that the president feels compelled to tweet about the news story here shows that what his fundamental focus is, is not the security of our forces, but whether he looks like he wasn't paying attention. So he's saying, well, nobody told me, therefore you can't blame me. Do you agree with Ambassador Bolton? <laughs> Listen, I, I do think there feels like a lack of concern about the gravity of the information and what it meant for troops on the ground in Afghanistan. Uh, it just That's just, to me, not somebody that's taking it seriously. Uh, I mean, I would have felt better if he would have come out and said, listen, I wasn't briefed, but I'll be guarantee you by the end of the day I'll be briefed. Well, that, I would have felt a lot better about that than this two days of denying it and then trying to craft a story about it wasn't my fault. And that worries me more than the fact that there, you know, this happened uh, and the president wasn't briefed. And so, again, I, I worry about that. And by the way, we've been, we're into this, what, our third day, and the story isn't quite consistent just yet. And that tells me you're more concerned about what the public perception is than the fact that that information wasn't in the hands of people who were making decisions about serious things like a peace deal with the Taliban, about inviting Russians uh, to the G7, about releasing prisoners from the Taliban uh, out and back out into the battlefield. All of those are massive, consequential decisions. Not having this information should get people's blood pressure up. I know it gets mine up. Absolutely. Former uh, Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Rogers, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. It is the third hey, largest Jay. county in the country. It is a coronavirus hotspot. What one Texas doctor says needs to be done to prevent things from getting worse. Stay with us. Internationally today, terrifying new coronavirus numbers out of Texas were for the third day in a row. 
More than 5,000 people statewide have been admitted to the hospital with COVID-19. The head of one Houston hospital, United Memorial Medical Center, expects to see his ICU completely filled in just days. In Houston, there are two types of patients, those that have COVID and those who will get COVID. My concern as a healthcare provider is that when they get sick, they don't all come to me at the same time, which is what's happening at the present time. And that's what's going to kill patients because we won't have enough resources. CNN's Lucy Kafanov is live outside that hospital in Houston, Texas. And Lucy, new restrictions on restaurants go into place today. But have city or state leaders explained what other steps they're willing to take to, to slow the spread? Well, Jake, we're waiting for the Houston mayor to speak in about 20 minutes. We know that in Travis County, home to Austin, there's been a push to shut down public parks ahead of the 4th of July weekend. But this is a growing public health crisis. The fact of the matter is Texas doesn't know what the peak is in terms of the virus. They don't know how many cases are out there. We are in front of the United Memorial Medical Facility. Take a look behind me. You see those lines of cars. Folks out here have been lining up since the early hours of the morning. One man said he was here from 4 a.m. There are more than 900 facilities across the state to get tested, but they are overwhelmed. We know that this facility has tested about 85,000 people. They have a positivity rate of 16 percent. That is very high. And another scary stat, this hospital sees all kinds of patients. Whether you have a hangnail or a heart attack, you get tested for covid 47% of people who come in for completely unrelated reasons, Jake, test positive for COVID. It shows you just how rampant the spread of this virus is here. Jake. All right, Lucy, thank you so much. Joining us now, Dr. Umer Shah. He's the executive director for Harris County, Texas Public Health, which includes Houston. Uh, Dr. Shah, thank you for joining us. Harris County, the third largest county in, in the country, and it's now a coronavirus Hotspot. I'm talking about population, uh, obviously. How bad is it on the ground right now where you are? Well, Jake, first of all, thanks for having me. And, you know, let me let me answer that in a couple of ways. One is that obviously when you see and hear the numbers that we're we're you know, we're seeing, but also what you just brought up, our concern is really very much about the numbers are one thing, but really it's it's how uh, busy the system is throughout, whether it's the healthcare system, as you just mentioned, on the top of the hour here, or if it's really what we're seeing in the community with folks that are really trying to get tested. We have seen an increase in everything, and that's what really concerns us. The Houston mayor says the city needs to move quickly to slow this explosion of new cases. What needs to happen right now um, to, to make sure that happens so it doesn't get any worse? Well, as you know, Jake, we as a community did a fantastic job of fighting this pandemic early. And, and you know, all of our, our uh, numbers showed that case rates, death rates, et cetera. And now what we've seen is since the reopening occurred starting May 1st, and as you know, uh, the reopening was from the state side of of what they had decided, how they had decided things were going to reopen. Since that period of time, we've seen increases in cases and hospitalizations. And the key message that we're saying is that we need to make sure that as things reopen and you you see three, four weeks later, a few weeks later, that you start to see the impact of the reopening. Now when you dial back, it's going to take a few weeks for you to start to see, has there been an impact 
of that dampening back or that dial back. And that's what we're really concerned about is that have we already set this in motion that it's going to be too late to get all that? We don't think so. We hope that we still have that opportunity as a community. If we all do the right things, stay home as our county executive judge Hidalgo on Friday raised the uh, level of alert to red. Stay home if you don't need to go out. Certainly wear the face coverings and do all the things, but stay out of those big crowds and social distancing is an absolute must. And certainly testing is the aspect of the final aspect that we want to make sure that people don't guess. They take the test so we can we can certainly know who's positive in our community. That's our best chance to get out of this. I want to share the rate of new cases in Texas because the rise is really dramatic. Just a few weeks ago, Texas seemed to have reached a plateau, holding steady at fewer than 2,000 new cases a day. And now there's just this massive spike. What happened? Well, I think uh, I just said it. It was reopening and what I call the layering effect. You layered reopening on top of uh, holidays, milestone events, Mother's Day, you had Memorial Day weekend. You had the protests here, at least in, in Houston. On top of that, you had graduations. You had all sorts of activities that occurred. People layered back onto their normal activities as well as additional activities. And that's when you started to see the increase. I'm glad that the governor and the state have dialed back, but we are very concerned that urban communities such as Houston and, and obviously Harris County here, but also Austin and San Antonio and Dallas, we've got to make sure that we have those tools available to us so we can fight this that may be different than the other 250 su such counties in Texas. So it has to be looked at differently in those urban communities as it is those rural jurisdictions. All right, Dr. Umar Shah, thank you so much and best of luck with this as Houston goes through this just horrific event. It's flown for over a century, but now Mississippi's flag and its Confederate emblem are coming down. So what will replace it? Stay with us. With an overwhelming bipartisan vote, Mississippi lawmakers have now agreed to get rid of the Confederate battle emblem on their state flag, a symbol for so many Americans of slavery and segregation, white supremacy and hate. Now, after 126 years, Mississippi will be the final state to take down this ugly reminder of the United States' painful and shameful past, as CNN's Martin Savage reports. In the span of a weekend, Mississippi's legislature did what many in the state thought they'd never see in their lifetime. <laughs> voting to remove the last state flag containing an overt Confederate emblem. How many states have a flag that 40 or 50 percent of their people in their state can't stand. Recent national protests against racial injustice put renewed focus on Confederate symbols. All week, pressure had been mounting on Mississippi from leaders in education, business, religion, and the sports world demanding change. Real racial inequalities that exist in Mississippi, and the flag was just the start of something new in Mississippi that we need to address. Then Republican Governor Tate Reeves signaled for the first time he was willing to sign a bill to create a new flag, tweeting, The argument over the 1894 flag has become as divisive as the flag itself, and it's time to end it. The decision was cheered by civil rights leaders. This is a long time coming. Finally, Mississippi decided to be one of the 50 states and not the one state standing alone, still bearing uh, the emblem of a, segregation, a segregated society. Even the great-great-grandson of Confederate President Jefferson Davis said it was time. 
put it in a museum and honor it there or put it in your house. But the flag of Mississippi should represent the entire population. But not everyone is thrilled. There is still a significant number of Mississippians opposed to the change. This is not the Confederate battle flag. This is the flag of the state of Mississippi. Once the bill becomes law, a nine-member commission will be tasked with coming up with a new flag design, guided by two requirements. It must say, in God we trust, and can have no Confederate emblem. The final version will be voted on by the people of Mississippi this November. The only thing waiting now is the next step, which is the governor's signature. We reached out to the Mississippi governor's office to ask when that might be. Their answer was soon. When that happens, 15 days later, there will be a formal retirement ceremony. The flag will be taken down for the last time. And then Mississippi will be without a state flag until the voters approve a new one in November, Jake. All right, Martin Savage, thank you so much. Appreciate it. The Republicans moved their convention from Charlotte in part to avoid a mask mandate. Well, now their new site, Jacksonville, is requiring masks as well. That's next. Plus, you know who isn't sure will ever be 100% protected from the virus, even if we get a vaccine? Dr. Fauci. Why? That's ahead. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome back to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin this hour with our health lead explosive growth of new coronavirus infections and hospitalizations throughout much of the United States. Today, the health of the, world, the head of the World Health Organization giving this blunt assessment, the pandemic is, quote, not even close to being over, he said. At least 46 of the United States are seeing surges in cases or holding steady. Only four states are showing a decline, an alarming spike since this time last week. And the consequences could prove even deadlier. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar telling me that the window to take action and slow the spread is closing. An ominous warning, as at least 14 governors are pausing or even reversing steps in their reopening plans. Right now, there are more than 2.5 million confirmed coronavirus cases in the United States, with the death toll nearing 126,000 lives lost. The U.S., with less than 5% of the world's population, has around 25% of the world's coronavirus deaths, according to official numbers. No way to spin this is anything other than an abject failure by the Trump administration and many state governments to keep their people safe. CNN's Nick Watt is in hard-hit California. Nick, the state's Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom, saying moments ago that California has seen a 45% increase in cases that have tested positive over just the last week. Jake, the news is not good from out here in California. We are setting new records, unwanted records. The positivity rate is rising. The average new case count every day is rising. The number of people in the hospital is rising. In fact, the governor said that over the past two weeks, the numbers in the hospital is up over 40%. So he's closing bars here in Los Angeles and six other counties. He has a bunch of counties on a watch list. He is, like other leaders around the country, pausing or rolling back on the reopening. Because of this, this, and this. We'd have to change a tube and if somebody that has no oxygen, he could have died. We are now hearing this. Arizona, 
is on pause. We will continue to take action based upon the data. 14 states now pausing or tweaking their reopening plans. The window is closing for us to take action and get this under control. And in states that still won't mandate masks, some mayors now making that call in Nashville, Kansas City, Tupelo, and now Jacksonville, where the president had hoped to hold an unmasked convention later this summer. Is his no-mask mantra now evolving? He encourages people to make whatever decision is best for their safety, but he did say to me he has no problem with masks and to do whatever your local jurisdiction requests of you. Meanwhile, long lines for tests in Florida, where the new case counts are now more than six times what they were a month ago. So South Florida's beaches will be closed again for the 4th of July. In only four small states are new case counts actually falling, while in these six states, COVID-19 hospitalizations are now at an all-time high. Bars across Texas have closed again. 46% of our positives were 20 to 30-year-olds. And we think that was as a direct result of uh, congregations in the bars. And infections among a younger crowd create a problem. What you're seeing is community-based spread where 20 to 40% of the people who are infected don't have any symptoms. So the standard classic paradigm of identification, isolation, contact tracing doesn't work no matter how good you are. Even in New York City, which is doing relatively well right now, Broadway will be dark now until next year, 2021. We need, say the experts, around 30 contact tracers per 100,000 people. CNN has learned that right now Florida has about seven, Arizona about five, and Georgia as few as two. Dr. Fauci now says he'd settle for a vaccine that's 70 to 75 percent effective, but... Maybe not everybody would be willing to take it, making herd immunity. Unlikely, and that's one of the reasons why we have to make sure we engage the community as we're doing now. Now, up until this point, the message on masks has really been one of kind of love thy neighbor, wear one to protect somebody else. But now Dr. Burks from the White House Coronavirus Task Force says that there is also signs to suggest that they do partially protect the wearer. And she is also warning young people, you could be out there, you could be asymptomatic. So if you're saying hi to grandma and grandpa, wear a mask. Jake. All right, Nick Watt in Los Angeles, thanks so much. Joining me now is CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, you heard HHS Secretary Azar tell me yesterday that the window to get this virus mm -hmm. under control is closing. How, how long do we have, or might it already be too late? Well, you know, it depends how you define too late. I mean, I think action is always going to be better than inaction at this point, but there's no question, Jake, as we've been talking about you and I since February and March, that the earlier you act, the better. I mean, if we're thinking about this as a metaphor of a body and you're treating a cancer or something, you want to treat early. We've been waiting and there's been spread of this, this, this infection now through the country. So it's going to require uh, treatment. It's going to require more aggressive treatment in some areas versus others. You know, I think that at this point it almost becomes an existential question. What are we willing to tolerate in terms of people actually getting sick and possibly dying before we start imposing some of these, 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 uh, these actions, Jake. We know it needs to be done. We've seen it around the world. We have evidence that it works. We just need to apply some of these things here uniformly across the country.
And Sanjay, take a look at this graphic. On the left side of the screen is the map showing the case trends in the United States. Right now, 31 states have increased levels of, of new coronavirus cases, 15 states holding steady. Only four are trending down. Now compare that to the map on the right, which is from Memorial Day, about a month ago. It's a stunning difference. It's worse now, much more red today, many more cases increasing. If, if you stay with this metaphor, Jake, of, of looking at those maps as the body, you know, the, the disease is, is more widespread now. Where it was localized before, you had certain things that you could have done in localized areas to bring it down. I look at that map, Jake, and if I, I see the entire country now at risk, yeah, you know, because people do travel around. We're, we are the United States, but if you start to get these significant increases in places around the country, a 102% increase in Florida, 78% in Georgia, where I am, you know, Texas, Arizona, 27% over the last seven days. These are significant increases, and we're likely starting to see some exponential growth. I don't think you can look at any part of the country and say that it's not vulnerable now. That's, that's, that's the tough news. Because of what's happening in some of these other places, it affects the entire country. At the height of the virus, hospitals were overwhelmed. There was a desperate need for ventilators and PPE, personal protective equipment. Thousands of Americans were dying every day. Here's what uh, HHS Secretary Azar said to me yesterday on State of the Union. Things are very different from two months ago. We now have three therapeutics. We have hospital capacity. We have reserves of personal mm -hmm. protective equipment. Uh, we're, we're speeding our way towards, uh, towards having vaccines. Um, so it's a very different situation. Do you agree? Is it a very different situation right now? You know, in some ways, it's different. I think he's he's obviously doing what he should be doing, putting a positive spin on this, Jake. I mean, you know, the three the three therapeutics he's talking about, remdesivir, uh, that's one that does shorten the duration of uh, recovery a bit. Dexamethasone is a steroid medication for the sickest patients. Convalescent serum, I think, is the third therapeutic he's talking about. That hasn't been shown to be effective yet, but there's a lot of promise around that. They are making progress on a vaccine. It's, we're not there yet. As far as personal protective equipment, I watched your interview. I thought that was a good, good follow-up that you had. The way they figure this out is they say, hey, look, let's look at the past five months and figure out which was the, the worst 30 days. And if we want to have a 90-day supply, we're going to multiply that 30-day worst window by three and see if we can have 90 days. Two, there's two issues. One is that when are you going to have that? that? That plan was for October, you know, during this possible second wave. Well, as you're showing from these maps, there may not be a second wave in the sense that we may not really get out of the first wave here. We're having a significant peak. The other issue is that the, the worst 30-day period over the last five months, we may supersede that. 30, we may have a, a worse period over the next couple of months. So are we going to have enough personal protective equipment? Miguel Marquez's piece out of Houston today shows these healthcare workers using PPE, switching them out several times a day get more and more patients coming to these hospitals, it's not clear to me that we're going to have enough of some of that basic equipment. I want to play for you what Dr. Fauci said about the prospect of a coronavirus vaccine. I doubt seriously that any vaccine will ever be 100% protected. The best we've ever done is measles, which is 97 to 98% effective. Um, oh, that would be wonderful if we get there. I don't think we will. I would settle for a 70, 75% effective vaccine because that would bring you to that level of would be herd immunity level. 
Dr. Anthony Fauci, the top infectious diseases expert, talking to our own Elizabeth Cohen. What do you, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, if it's a 70 to 75% effective vaccine and everyone takes it, that's going to be that's going to be a good thing. We will get to that herd immunity. I think the the rest of that conversation uh, with Elizabeth basically was that right now you got about a third of the country in some of this polling that says that they are vaccine hesitant or they would they write out come out and say they wouldn't take it, which means you're not going to get to herd immunity from this. So, you know, one of two things has to happen. It's it's simple math. Either it has to be a better vaccine has to be more protective or more people have to be taking this vaccine. Uh, you might get to a situation where enough people get infected and develop their own antibodies where that could help with herd immunity, but it's, it's tough. You know, if you create a good vaccine and people don't take it in the middle of a pandemic, I mean, at that point, you know, you, you aren't left with a lot of options other than more people will get infected than, than should. What is the reason that we're having this spike right now? If it's about a four week lag time, is this all just because in May, all of these governors just reopened businesses way too quickly, not adhering to the White House's own guidelines, cheered on by the president who wanted to get the economy going, not wearing masks, going into bars, lots of group activities like is that is that why we are where we are? I mean, I've heard some people say maybe it's some of it is the protests, although I'm not sure the timeline works out. I, you know, I think that, that, that the protests are probably contributing to this as well. I think the, the reopening early uh, is contributing. I think fundamentally, Jake, what it is, is that we knew what the treatment was for this infection. And again, I'm, I'm using this metaphor, maybe overusing it of the body as the country here, but we knew what the treatment was for this infection. We saw that treatment work in other countries around the world. The, it, it's not a medicine. It is the stay at home. It is slowing down the transmission of this virus. And that treatment works. We've seen it work in other places. Problem was we, we, we got about, you know, a part way through the treatment and we got bored and we stopped the treatment. We started to reopen early. All those other things, I think, are offshoots of it. You know, people thinking, well, you know, we're through it. You open up the country. Why do we need to wear masks anymore? Why do we need to maintain the physical distance? All these things, I think, contributed to this, and now we're seeing the ramifications. We need, we need this treatment one way or the other. Whether it's going to be in our hands or it's going to be forced upon us, we have to have this treatment. Otherwise, this infection is just going to continue to spread. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. Coming up, an Intel report says that Russians offered bounties to Taliban terrorists to kill U.S. and U.K. troops. Today, the White House said the president never heard about it. Speaker Pelosi will react live in minutes. Then, reports of crime surging across the United States. A one-year-old among those killed in Chicago. A troubling situation on the ground in places such as New York as the nation debates the future of policing. What did President Trump know about Russians allegedly putting a bounty on American lives in Afghanistan, and when did he know it? As first reported by the New York Times and confirmed by multiple outlets, including CNN, U.S. intelligence found that Russians offered a bounty if Taliban terrorists killed U.S. and British troops in Afghanistan. Now the Washington Post, citing intelligence assessments, reports that the blood money did in fact lead to U.S. service members being killed. The White House is denying that the president was ever briefed on this, instead saying that there was not a consensus among U.S. intelligence agencies on the credibility of the intel. But CNN's Caitlin Collins reports that isn't going to fly for many lawmakers. 
The White House adamant today that President Trump was never briefed on intelligence reports that Russia was secretly offering to pay Taliban-linked militants to kill U.S. troops in Afghanistan. He was not personally briefed on the matter. But the press secretary struggled to explain why Trump wasn't told about the stunning intelligence or what he'll do in response. I won't speculate on whether this intelligence is verified or not verified, and I won't get ahead of the president on further actions, but I would just point out that no one... are not disputing that no this one, is not true. No one, there, not disputing there are dissenting opinions within the intelligence community, and I can confirm with you right now that there's no consensus within the intelligence community on these allegations. There doesn't have to be a consensus among the intelligence community to brief the commander-in-chief. Mac Thornberry, the top Republican on the House Armed Services Committee, said he's concerned that Trump wasn't briefed on anything with a hint of credibility that would endanger our service members, much less put a bounty on their lives. A congressional briefing was hastily thrown together today after lawmakers, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, called on the administration to tell Congress what they know. I don't know what the Russians have on the president politically, personally, financially or whatever it is but he wants to ignore. Something is wrong with this picture. The press secretary says Pelosi is playing politics, but the calls for more information have been bipartisan. Liz Cheney, the third highest ranking Republican in the House, also said the White House must explain what's being done in response to hold Vladimir Putin accountable if the intelligence is accurate. Today, the White House did not say what its response would be or whether there will be one at all. You don't think this report is true? I'm telling you this, that there's no consensus in the intelligence community and that the dissenting opinions from some in the intelligence community exist. The intelligence was first reported by the New York Times and has been confirmed by several outlets, including CNN. And the Washington Post is now citing intelligence assessments that say those bounties resulted in the deaths of several U.S. troops. Now, Jake, we should be clear, CNN has not confirmed that Washington Post reporting. What we do know is that eight GOP lawmakers were briefed this afternoon about these reports, about these Russian bounties. They were briefed by the National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, the Director of National Intelligence, John Ratcliffe, and the Chief of Staff here at the White House, Mark Meadows. We're told that Democrats were offered a briefing last night by Meadows. It's unclear if they have accepted and when exactly that briefing is going to happen. All right, Caitlin Collins, thank you so much. Lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are demanding answers about these Russian bounties. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said this is as bad as it gets. She will join us next. The health lead in a major ruling today, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a law that would have imposed regulations on medical centers that provide abortion services that ultimately would have closed all but one such clinic in the state of Louisiana. In the 5-4 decision, the court struck down Louisiana's law. This marks the third time in two weeks that conservative Chief Justice John Roberts has sided with the more liberal justices. I want to bring in CNN chief legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin. Also with me, Mary Ziegler, who wrote the book Abortion and the Law in America. Mary, let me start with you. In this case, Louisiana wanted doctors at abortion clinics to have admitting privileges at hospitals within 30 miles. Chief Justice Roberts has never before ruled in favor of abortion rights or against abortion restrictions. Yet in his opinion today, he wrote, quote, the Louisiana law imposes a burden on access to abortion just as severe as that imposed by the Texas law for the same reasons. Therefore, Louisiana's law cannot stand under our precedence. What does this opinion signal to you 
as other states try to bring uh, similar abortion restrictions uh, onto the table and before the court? Well, I, I think there's kind of a glass half empty and glass half full reading of this for supporters of abortion rights. Roberts has, has talked a big game for a long time about caring about precedent. And today we saw that he's, he's going to walk the walk, too, at least to an extent. Um, at the same time, Roberts didn't join the liberal plurality. Um, and I think went out of his way to suggest that he would be open to some other kinds of abortion restrictions, perhaps ones that wouldn't re require the court to repudiate precedent as quickly. So I think the future of abortion rights, especially the future of Roe v. Wade, very much remains up for grabs, uh, although um, Roberts is certainly the new swing justice on these cases. Uh, Jeffrey, the Trump administration had sided with the state of Louisiana and the Democratic governor, uh, John Bell Edwards, uh, on this abortion case. Um, two weeks ago, Chief Justice Roberts f f uh, ruled in favor of worker protections for LGBTQ individuals. He also sided with the liberal wing uh, when it came to the president's efforts uh, to take away DACA for the so-called DREAMers, uh, immigration protections. What do you make of Roberts bucking the Trump administration and siding with the liberal uh, justices on these cases, especially in an election year? It's a very big deal. And frankly, Jake, it's very surprising to me. You know, John Roberts um, has had a handful of uh, liberal rulings in the 15 years he's been chief justice. Most famously, of course, he cast the deciding vote uh, to keep Obama Obamacare alive. Um, back when, back in the uh, in President Obama's first term, but these are three very consequential decisions that affect real people's lives, and they were hotly debated at the court. And the fact that he joined with the liberals on all three is, I think, indicative of an evolution of his views. And you know, I I, I think it does signal that John Roberts is not going to be the fifth vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. And that's a very big deal. And that was not at all clear from his prior jurisprudence. So I think we are seeing uh, the evolution of a justice. He's not going to turn into some big liberal, but he is certainly not as conservative as the other four appoint Republican appointees on the court. And Mary, in this world of the coronavirus pandemic, some states uh, have suggested that abortion is an elective surgery. Uh, and therefore should be uh, prevented when they, when they you know, cancel elective surgeries because of the emergency rooms. Could you see a restriction like that ultimately perhaps even setting up a challenge to Roe v. Wade? Potentially. Um, it, it's less likely now that we've seen red states roll back a lot of stay-at-home orders um, in general. The states that have tended to treat abortion as a non-essential service or a non-essential medical procedure have also been the states that have opened rapidly. But as we've seen states like Texas begin to rethink that decision, it's certainly possible. There's no shortage of other abortion restrictions in the pipeline. And I think a lot of anti-abortion organizations are willing to test uh, Jeff's theory that Roberts has, in fact, evolved on abortion um, and isn't, in fact, more interested kind of in um, in the court's reputation or legacy or in kind of face saving. So we're likely to see abortion restrictions that don't as obviously fly in the face of recent precedent uh, come before the, sh the court uh, sooner rather than later. And Jeffrey, when rulings earlier this month did not go his way, President Trump questioned whether the Supreme Court liked him 
Um, do you see today's ruling have any having any impact at all uh, on the election this November? Well, I do. I do think uh, it's a reminder of how Supreme Court justices are uh, a president's most important legacy. And, you know, the president uh, promised during real when he ran in 2016 that he was going to appoint justices that will vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. And he did get the votes of Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh on the anti-abortion side. So I do think you know, the, the president can make a good argument that I need more justices to get on the, you know, to, to appoint so that we can eventually overturn Roe v. Wade. By the same token, Joe Biden can argue that this issue is still unsettled. And with the uh, age of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer, you know, their their continued tenure on the court and their possible replacements should be something voters are thinking about when they go to the polls. All right, Mary Ziegler, Jeffrey Tubin, thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. Alleged Russian bounties on U.S. troops in Afghanistan. The White House says the president was not briefed about this intelligence. Does Speaker Nancy Pelosi believe that? I'll ask her. Next. Politics now. Today, Republicans and Democrats are demanding more information from the White House after reports that, according to U.S. intelligence, Russian officials offered bounties to Taliban terrorists if they killed U.S. or U.K. service members in Afghanistan. The Washington Post is reporting that, per intel assessments, the Russian bounties did lead to U.S. service members being killed. CNN has not confirmed that Washington Post report. Joining me now to discuss this more, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Democrat of California. Speaker Pelosi, thanks for joining us. So sources tell CNN that eight Republican members of Congress were briefed today on this intelligence by the White House and that Chief of Staff Meadows has offered to brief a group of Democrats tomorrow. Have you spoken with anybody at the White House about, about being briefed on this, this shocking intelligence? Well, the shocking intelligence it is, and it would be my hope that it isn't true, uh, but it seems clear that the intelligence is real. The question is whether the president was briefed. If he was not briefed, why would he not be briefed? Were they afraid to approach him on the subject of Russia? And were they concerned that if they did tell him that he would tell Putin? So there's a lot that remains out there. In terms of briefing Congress, I wrote to the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, and the head of the Central Intelligence Agency, the two of them asking for a full briefing to all the members of the House of Representatives. Uh, that is what members need and deserve. Uh, the, the fact that they might invite some folks over is fine. I always encourage people to accept an invitation for briefing from the White House, but it is no substitute for what they owe the Congress of the United States. As an intelligence person myself, or a generation in the Congress, I know that force protection is the first responsibility of intelligence, to make sure that when uh, hostilities are initiated, we have the best possible protection for our troops. Mm -hmm. And when they are engaged in a military action, that they are protected. So for the intelligence community to say that the Russians may have initiated a bounty on our troops. I just hope it isn't true. But whatever it, the question remains, was the president briefed? And if he were briefed, then who briefed him? We'd like to see those notes as well. 
So the White House says that the president was not briefed. Uh, the White House also said, Kayleigh McEnany, the press secretary, uh, she seemed to suggest that the reason he was not briefed is because this was not a consensus view of the U.S. intelligence community, that there were dissenting opinions. Um, sources tell CNN that U.S. intelligence leaders briefed top intelligence officials from the United Kingdom about this intelligence last week. It sounds like you're not sure whether or not President Trump was actually briefed and you, you think that it's possible that he's lying about that. Well, I don't know. I mean, the point is, is that if they had this intelligence, and, and by the way, the high confidence, forget that. I mean, in other words, if you have something of that threat to our troops, you pursue it. You pursue it. And as an intelligence person, again, the Intelligence Committee is frequently briefed on matters that, uh, that are in the works, shall we say, that we will learn more about uh, as, the, as more intelligence is available. So if they, had this, if they had this intelligence, they should have briefed the president. Why didn't they? Because they know it makes them very unhappy. And all roads for him, as you know, lead to Putin. And would he tell Putin what they knew? Uh, and now it's in the public domain, so Putin knows anyway. But for them to, ha for for the uh, our allies who are with us together in Afghanistan to be briefed on this, and not the Congress of the United States, or as he says, the President of the United States, uh, it's a. Uh, uh, it's it, highly questionable. My first reaction when I heard it is, my goodness, I hope this isn't true, that our troops are in further danger because of Putin. It's dangerous enough in Afghanistan, I can tell you that, uh, without Putin injecting his bounty into it. But if he did, the mm -hmm. American people should know about it. And if he did, and the intelligence community had an, an uh, intelligence about it, uh, they should have endure, uh, informed the president in a way that he would understand and that he would keep uh, highly confidential. Maybe they feared he would not. But that's why we have to see, if he weren't briefed, what the notes are of the briefer to the president. So they can't say, well, they told me this and they didn't tell me that part of it. This is, a, this is as serious as it gets. Our men and women in uniform, uh, what they... they are willing to do so much for our country, but we cannot put them at a disadvantage. And when we know what that disadvantage may be, for three months, do nothing about it. And uh, did they consider yeah. sanctions? Did they consider uh, diplomatic response to Putin? That's part of this conversation as well. Let's just find out the facts. Let's find out the truth. And let's you know, have our suspicions, because as I've said over and over, when it comes to President Trump, all roads lead to his right. friend Vladimir Putin. Um, so I want to ask you also, the Trump administration uh, is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn completely mm. Obamacare or mm. the Affordable Care Act. If the Supreme Court does that, what will Democrats do? What will you do? Well, the, my understanding on the timing of it is, first of all, we're in the middle of a pandemic. You would think that in the middle of the pandemic, the president of the United States would uphold the law instead of going to court to overturn the law, which provides uh, affordable care to so many millions of people in our country. And at the same time, misrepresent, as is their 
want misrepresent uh, where they, where they, what they know. They're saying that they, oh yeah, they support the benefit of a pre-existing condition uh, being uh, not an obstacle to coverage, but in fact they're going to court to overturn that condition and every other condition advantage in the benefit in the bill for America's working families. It is unfathomably cruel, as I've said, uh, what they're doing on this score. Uh, the timing, though, that I understand is they did their briefs this end of last week. We will counter with our brief shortly, uh, but probably the court will not take up uh, the oral arguments until the fall. Uh, so by then, um, 127, 26 days from now, uh, we'll have a Democratic Congress. But I would hope that the court would uphold uh, stare decisis as it did this morning in the Louisiana case. Uh, that they would uphold mm -hmm. uh, the Affordable Care Act, the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act. And as a matter of fact, as we speak here on the floor of the House today, we took up the P Patient Protection Affordable Care Expe Enhancement mm -hmm. Act, which will, again, lower the cost of prescription drugs, as we promised in the campaign. We passed it, H.R. 3, last year. It's now part of the legislation today. So as we are enhancing okay. the Affordable Care Act, the president is overturning it at a time when we have over 125,000 Americans who have died from the pandemic. Yeah. And the president is overturning yeah. one of their lifelines. Uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, thank you so much for your time today. We My appreciate pleasure. it. Thank Coming you. up, glass bottles thrown at the NYPD and police said to be at their breaking point as cities across the nation report a surge in crime and wonder what the future of policing will look like. Stay with us. In our national lead today, as protests continue across the country, police officers are becoming targets of their own. And as CNN's Bryn Gingrass reports, the head of the New York Police Union says officers have hit their breaking point, leading to nearly 300 retirements since May amid a spike in crime across the nation. Some cities across America are seeing rates of violent crime go up and in some cases by numbers they haven't seen in years. The guns and the cowards these evil bastards behind those guns. Anger from Chicago's top cop after more than 60 people were shot this weekend. Among them, a 10-year-old girl and a 1-year-old boy killed. As a dad, sitting alongside other parents up here on this podium, I struggle to make sense of the reckless gun violence that continues to take the lives of our young people throughout the city. In Philadelphia, gun violence is up 57% from a year ago, according to local media. Homicides in Milwaukee are up 47% this year. And the Los Angeles Police Department says the city saw a 250% spike in homicides in the first week of June. Chicago and um, uh, Houston and uh, Charlotte. Um, you know, the numbers certainly don't add up in, in those cities. Chris Herman analyzes crime data across the country, and as a former NYPD analyst, he focuses on crime trends in New York City. Here, shootings are on an alarming upswing, with police reporting 503 shootings this year compared to 350 at this time a year ago. The escalating crime in some major cities... Where you find the Minneapolis Police Department? 
comes as calls to defund police departments gains traction. The NYPD stands to lose a billion dollars in one of the city's latest budget proposals. We're dealing with a specific reality with the NYPD, unquestionably. And that is because it's important to show that we are going to make changes in this city. All this comes amid new police reforms, communities dealing with the aftermath of the pandemic, and morale in many police departments said to be at an all-time low following the murder last month of George Floyd. In Harlem this weekend, when police responded to calls of a shooting, officers were met with bottles thrown at their cruisers. 272 NYPD officers filed for retirement just within the last month. And after the charging of two police officers involved in the death of Richard Brooks, more than 100 Atlanta officers didn't show up to work in what was dubbed the blue flu. And, of course, we're coming up on the July 4th holiday weekend, which is traditionally a very busy time for law enforcement. Now, separate from this, later this week, there are many cities, Jake, across this country that are going to begin their new fiscal year. And we've heard those rally cries to defund the police. Well, there's a lot of budget proposal cuts to police departments, and that could mean we're seeing the scaling back of officers actually on the streets. Jake. All right, Bryn Gingras, thank you so much. Coming up next, a CNN team goes behind bars to see how one of the country's largest jails is trying to stop coronavirus from spreading following a huge outbreak. Stay with us. The state of Illinois is now allowing its residents to dine indoors and work out in gyms, despite seeing more than 600 new coronavirus cases on Sunday. One of the state's early outbreaks was inside Chicago's Cook County Jail. CNN's Omar Jimenez went behind bars to see how they're now keeping inmates and staff safe. Inside Chicago's Cook County Jail, there's a delicate balance at play. Now, more than ever, weighing the usual demands of being one of the biggest jails in the country against the potent reality of the coronavirus pandemic. We're walking into a particular pod here at Cook County Jail where, like all of them, they had to cut down their population about 50% as a precaution for the coronavirus here because there are just some things you can't control in a jail, but what you can do is try and spread people out. Sheriff Tom Dart says if they see a spike in detainees in the summertime, as they typically do, that delicate balance quickly gets thrown off. These are all these interlinking parts here where there's not unlimited beds, there's not unlimited space, unlimited correctional staff to watch them. Which means, Dart says, they may have to go back to putting two in a cell, specifically those who have recovered from coronavirus, like Robert Cook. I couldn't taste anything. It just, uh, my hair was hurting a little bit. He's being housed within a quarantine camp created by the jail for the pandemic to separate out those who are symptomatic, confirmed sick, or recovering. They're making sure we, we keep everything clean. You know, I just like to say that I hope it comes to an end re- real soon. The camp became crucial as the numbers began to explode. We knew it wasn't going to be if coronavirus was going to come to the jail, if coronavirus is in the city of Chicago, it's going to come into the jail. You expected it to hit, but you couldn't anticipate how hard it hit. When I look back, I, you know, it, it feels like the fog of war. We were in war. The number of confirmed cases at the jail went from 38 detainees in late March to over 250 just a week and a half later. In total, since their first confirmed cases in mid-March, more than 500 detainees ended up testing positive. 
Seven of them died, along with over 400 employees testing positive, with three of them dying. At one point, the jail was labeled by one newspaper as the largest known source for coronavirus infections in the country. A label, Dart says, was unfair. No one else was testing. And we're all sitting there saying to ourselves, what did we do wrong? We literally did everything based on science and logic. The only thing we did wrong is that we were transparent. Now, the numbers have changed dramatically, going from what once was a more than 90% positivity rate down to less than one. Even in-person visitations have resumed for the first time in nearly three months. A lot of it stemming from here. Just relax. Did this test make you feel any better at all? And the fact that I know I'm against the results don't make me feel better. Testing is now among the biggest weapons the jail is armed with. A lot of them say, I don't have it, I'm not sick. You may not be sick, but you may have COVID-19. You don't have to be symptomatic. You don't have to have a risk factor. We are going to test you for COVID. Now, in regards to the rest of that balance at the jail, the sheriff told me they're about 500 detainees away from their current precautions not being able to hold up. And on a month-to-month basis, we are already seeing a rise in the number of detainees they're getting. Jake. All right, Omar Jimenez, thank you so much. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 